Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 89. We are joined again by our reread crew, Azil. Hey. And Grail. Hello. Well, we're here to finish up volume 21, which is one of my favorite volumes, contains some of my favorite moments in the series. But before we get to that, I just have a few tiny little Berserk newsish updates. One of them's not even really news, but we'll go through it real quick. I, um, I, I commented on Twitter recently that I'd, in one, in one week's time, I'd encountered two real life berserk, like, you know, sightings, I guess you could say. And I thought it was really weird because I mean, I've been reading the series since 99 or 2000 and I've, I've never experienced anything. I've never like happened across a berserk thing in real life. It's always relegated to net or anything else on the internet. Right. And so it was weird that within one week I was behind a guy on the way to work uh, near DC and I uh, saw a brand bumper sticker like on his car. And I was like, that's kind of funny. Huh? And then like, I think it was the next day or the day before and around the same time I was in the grocery store and just these two stock clerks that were in a vegetable, you know, stocking vegetables. And I heard them over, over, I overheard them talking about Casca or specifically about Casca. I think what they said was something like, that's because after the eclipse, she went crazy and she's still crazy. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> They're talking about Casca, and I'm right next to them. Hmm, this is this is really weird. What a coincidence! You should tell them you're that guy on Reddit that's correcting everybody <laughs> that beat you up with a cucumber or something. My, I told it to my wife as well, and she said, "Did you did you tell them you're Walter?" And I said, "I don't think that would really matter to them if they if they even knew who the hell I am." Like I think she has an inflated sense of who that who I am. I guess. But, well, that's um, the only reason she allows you to go on this podcast and other such bullshit instead of mowing the lawn and doing you know like important stuff. <laughs> so that was weird. I was wondering if you guys had had any real life berserk encounters anywhere across your time being I'm pretty sure I saw Vaxilus on the train once, but I, I was too shy to say anything. Wow. Vaxilus, uh, man, that's like back, back in, in the nineties. Yeah, no. <laughs> and it was total coincidence that I had recognized him because the other day, you know how they we used to have that picture thread that everybody posted their oh, pictures yeah, right. on. And uh I just happened to recognize him from that thread and I was like, huh. But yeah, shout out to you, buddy. <laughs> I think I might I might have uh, encountered uh, like maybe one or two s- small things, but I don't really nothing nothing too memorable. Like I've met people who are like, "Oh, berserk! Oh yeah, 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 I know about that." And they're like, "Oh yeah, it's uh, it's fine, I guess. It's all right." And I'm like, "Oh, you, you motherfucker!" <laughs> but uh, you know, otherwise, yeah, I haven't like I don't know. I think I, I did you know see maybe a guy with a tattoo once or something like that, a brand tattoo, but. Other than that, nothing much. It is weird to run into people who you already know in real life who follow Berserk. Like, I have a friend who I know from middle school who's Japanese. He immigrated here. And he has been following Berserk for longer than I have, almost 17 years now. And he's like, yeah, it's fun. I just, you know, I pick it up every every time I go home, that sort of thing. And he reads it. And oh, he's caught that's up. kind of cute. It's just really funny because, you know, for him, it's just sort of a casual thing. Whereas I'm like, oh, man, did you catch the last episode? <laughs> and he's just like, yeah, it's fine. It's good. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I was able to follow it that casually. But I just know that I'm not. Like, the times that I've, I've attempted to not you know, catch the latest releases as soon as they're available. It's been pretty painful. So uh, yeah. I, I'm not capable of doing it I that may way. have uh, teased you a bit. Oh, yeah. When you tried to do that, you know, like, oh, <laughs> oh, you didn't know. Pretty recently, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I've encountered people, I've met Azil in person, 
Um, I've met maybe I've got Griffin person as well. I'm not really counting those. I guess I'm going to mean it like in the wild, you know, someone posted on Reddit, I think it was a couple months back in Baltimore, they were, you know, in a bathroom and there was like a band promo and it was like someone had pasted it on the wall and it was a picture of the Pisasha tiger from, you know, volume 29 or 30 or so, the one where it's assaulting the ball. Yeah. And it had like that with it, like their band, you know, name and the cover and then the time of the concert. And I was like, wow, <laughs> like it is a pretty rad picture of a tiger, I guess, you know? <laughs> yeah, I want. I wonder if the guys even knew where it was from. I have no idea. I mean, I, I have to. It's a pretty specific picture, but I mean, maybe they talk, maybe they typed in rad tigers in Google image search. And that yeah, came, I probably I just know, picked but. it up on DeviantArt or something like that. Just a cold <laughs> version or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Um, other than that, the biggest of the big news is that Berserk is now available on Dark Horse uh, digitally. So you can now purchase official English translation scans online, keep them in your quote-unquote digital locker, take them with you wherever you want. It's uh, it's kind of a new era for Berserk fans because this was only previously an option for the Japanese scans. And if you've been listening to the show for a number of years, you know that we've always been kind of rattling the cage for that. Like, it's kind of a necessary next step in the way people absorb yeah. uh, and read these things is uh, having, I prefer personally, if I'm reading in my leisure time, I read the print ones, like, no question. But having access to the scans on my phone, on a tablet or whatever, that's awesome. And also... It's a game changer. Yeah, it's it's really a big deal. And um, what was actually really cool about this, this happened just uh, two weeks ago, I guess it was, mid, mid-July is when this started. And at the time, they were running a Dark Horse sale. So the original scans are $12.99 each. And they were half off for a while. So I was able to get, you know, 10 or so volumes for, you know, seven bucks each, which is really awesome. And, uh, can't say it enough, but this is kind of a new era for, for fans. Um, there were a lot of questions, uh, throughout the internet about what's the quality of the scan? What's the quality? Is it better than the, the Hawk scans? Like, first of all, the quality is great. I mean, particularly if you're looking on a phone or a tablet, I would call the quality great. If you're looking at a desktop, it's 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 totally fine. Like I I saw very few problems with reading on desktop. I'm looking at it right now and it looks fine. But like that's not the point is that it is now legally available. So if you have digital scans, those are now like totally officially illegal to own and to use regularly because there is and a pointless now a, really. And yeah, and totally pointless and and also kind of like an annoying thing to have to carry that around with you if you want to go mobile this is all available within a login so it's it's not only convenient it's legal so yeah what's cool is that uh my business scans are all in um dark or sing and also not now amazon so kindle scene comiXology so you get uh yeah like a wide variety of options it's not like you gotta download a special app or anything like that is you know whatever you sing of choice your app of choice you can get get them there so pretty cool Yep, and they have volumes 1 through 38, even though 38 just came out earlier this month, so that's really cool of them to just show that they're taking that next step immediately, and they're not having some kind of weird holdover, kind of like with you, the Japanese. Like, volume 39 is not yet available digitally. No, it, w- it wasn't last time I checked, and that volume's been out since earlier this month, uh, or last month, actually. So. And then uh, another issue uh, it solves is uh, the reprint problem. Like, we've had several, you know, long stretches without reprints of s- certain volumes before. And, you know, with digital, even if the print ones are out of stock, you can always get that. That's a good point. I actually totally forgot about that. But, yeah, that is that has in the past been a huge issue for people that are just new to the series. 
they're able to go to a bookstore or Amazon and see that, you know, I can get volumes one through three for normal prices, but six through 13 are 60 to $80, you know, and it's just ridiculous. Really? Yeah, it, it just hit me. Like, how mind-boggling is it that just a couple of years ago, we were looking at, oh, yeah, Dark Horse isn't going to put out any more print volumes mm-hmm. of Berserk, to not only was there a reprint recently, now it's all digital. So it's mm-hmm. like, whoa. It's imagine. Uh, I'm just imagining how different things would have been if, you know, Berserk fans hadn't been more vocal about, you know, getting the manga digitally available or getting the reprints going or stuff like that. I think the actual impetus was actually more complicated. I think I think it, the, the you know just a month ago the new president of international relations basically for Dark Horse was trumpeting Berserk as a popular you know widely selling franchise for yeah. Dark Horse. I think that probably pushed mm. things over the edge for them business wise to show that oh it's a million seller suddenly we care about this shit and suddenly we're gonna you know allow it to be up there. Digitally. Yeah, I was about to say to be fair. Even though the anime sucked, you know, like the tri- trilogy movie and uh, even the, the new series, I think those were part of an effort uh, by uh, Hakusensha to raise uh, Berserk's profile. And I think, like, uh, you know, that kind of stuff just worked, you know, like, even though the anime we got was shit, it, you know, it succeeded in raising the profile of Berserk, the awareness of the series. And uh, that led to more sales for Dark Horse, among, I'm sure, a lot of other factors. And uh, all these things together compiled with maybe more goodwill from Akusensha to allow digital uh, editions overseas, uh, you know, resulted in this. So uh, I guess it might be a civil lining in, uh, you know, the shit we had to sit through is that at least, you know, this came to be. Well, that is a scary thought, but that's very informative. <laughs> Thank you. I do think it's kind of inevitable that, you know, even if the series, the quality of the recent animation wasn't great, you know, it certainly drove a number of articles on various, you know, sites about new Berserk, you know, so that inevitably props up the series a little bit and the series gets more attention. Even if the actual quality animation is not great, Berserk's name is a little, raised a little higher. What's sad is to think that if the series had actually been good, the series and the movies actually been good, then, you know, the profile would have been raised that much more. And uh, unfortunately, yeah. like, you know, we, they, they got what they paid for, which is not much, but, you know, enough to act, at least, you know, make Dark Horse care. Well, it's that's all thematically relevant to Berserk to me, like surviving despite overwhelming odds. <laughs> it's like the whole thing about Berserk, right? Gut survives despite being outmatched, you know. Uh, so does Berserk, you know, even though it has really terrible adaptations the past 15 years, uh, it has survived. It struggles on. It, sur- it survives in spite of those things. Yeah. Not because of them. The last thing I wanted to mention before we get into the full reread was uh, really just a really funny quick aside. You know, we talk- I think we talked about the Castlevania series last time. If we didn't, then there's a new four-episode Castlevania animation on Netflix right now that I thought was good. I mean, I, I-, I wouldn't call it, like, amazing, but it was certainly, you know three times, four times better than I thought it was going to be. It was enjoyable. Yeah, it was better than expected. No, it's solid. It's solid. Definitely worth a watch if you have Netflix. And if you like Castlevania. That too. Yeah. I think even if you're a Berserk fan, there's there's a little bit that would resonate with you. Yeah, two things they wanted yeah. to make a live action movie back in the day, like it was going to be pure shit and we actually got this. I mean, I consider myself lucky. Yeah. Was Uwe Bowles uh, slated to direct that? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> But uh, I'm bringing it up because in an interview recently, I think it was on Anime News Network, I can't remember, the Castlevania's producer, A.D. Shankar, said, um, talked about, you know, how he was approaching how they adapted the series to animation. 
And he said, uh, I use the classic Berserk as an example of what to do and the CGI reboot as an example of what not to do, which I thought was a nice swift kick in the nads for their recent series. You know, we, we fans have been saying that for more than a year now, but to have that said in a, you know, interview with someone who actually has some clout was, was kind of nice to hear some validation yeah. of what we've been saying for yeah. a long time now. Um, it's, it's a little, um, a little unclear, but I think everyone kind of knows what he's saying. He's saying the 97 series was what to do and the recent 2016 CGI reboot, quote unquote, reboot is an example of what not yeah, to do. Yeah. And, you know, it actually reminds me of what you said. I think it was on podcast uh, a while back that, you know, uh, for all its faults, the 97 series, at least, uh, it had the right intent, you know, it understood what makes Berserk good, and that's why it could be good, uh, you know, even though it had a very low budget and uh, several limitations, while the new adaptations, be it uh, the movies or the new series, uh, they just don't get it, and that's why it continuously falls flat, you know, it's tone deaf, it's, uh, it's you know, always beside the point. Yeah. I, I go back to that old series, and even though I, I find some parts of the animation of the 97 series lacking, and, you know, the omission of Skull Knight's a little annoying, but, like, it does still, to me, feel like Berserk. Like, it, it I know the series pretty well, and I can, I can kind of spot what something's off a mile away, and I look at that, and it, it seems to be okay, atmosphere, tone, dialogue, you know, how, how their characters are portrayed, all those things kind of line up, uh, which recent adaptations have not done. And it's, it's, it's a small like, kind of directorial touch, or it has the touch of authenticity that these other things don't, don't just don't have. Yep. It definitely but, had some heart. Yeah. I do kind of worry though. And that's the reason I bring this up is I do kind of worry that the reason I feel that way is because deep seated in my heart, that was my first exposure to Berserk. So I always try to like line up like, What's the actual, you know, facts of this thing versus how I was initially exposed? No, to it, I, I think I think the crew that did uh, the original series uh, was just more professional, and yeah, they, they knew what they were doing more than the new guys. I mean, definitely, I I, I oh, also yeah. was, you know, mostly introduced to Berserk through that series, but I really have no love for it. But yeah, even though it lacks many things, even though I have tons of complaints about it, uh, yeah, definitely, like it's another level entirely, and and yeah, and that's in spite of like half of it is just you know stills where the camera slides over them. But you know, I mean, you know, (laughs) it knows what what matters in the story. You know, it knows Mm -hmm. what story bits are important, when to linger, when to go fast when to stick to what's on the page and when to, you know, do new stuff that the format allows. It, it knew how to do these things. And the, the new guys, you know, uh, they don't. They just don't. Like the music, everything's fucked up. Uh, we're not going to go over this again, but <laughs> I mean, yeah. It, re- it reminds me that we, you know, you and I had attempted to record an episode every, um, a, new, a podcast for every episode of the 2016 and we actually bottomed out after episode three we're like we can't do this anymore yeah but that nice was, i think that was the intent i think the intent was to go as long as we can and we lasted three basically and that was that was enough for us indeed yeah anyway on to the main event we're here to wrap up volume 21 uh we pick up right where we left off uh i guess four months back now earlier this year where the mega specters were approaching uh guts in the party as they are now kind of all together. Guts joins them after he dived and, you know, speared Mazgus, tossed him overboard. Uh, now they're facing off against Mega Specters. Uh, what's, what I really like about this first page, or we're starting with the uh, episode of Resonance, 
Um, what I like about this first page is that it begins to introduce the group dynamics that we still kind of see to this day. Of course, it's, it's a little different now because they're not fighting specters every night, but for a long time, this was the party dynamic. You know, Gut leading the charge, the flames, and Serpico, and Isitro, and Farnese, and Casco are all there. You know, Jerome's kind of the odd man out here, not with the current party, but this is kind of the beginning of that group dynamic for, for the, for, from now till, you know, from, from here till now, basically. I thought that was a neat little, not even an illusion, just the birth of the, of, of the group, really. Uh, as we go a little further, there's a little joke from Puck about how he's going to, you know, use his, all his anguish to, uh, harnessing Hellfire to explode the specters. I, I think the, the Dark Horse translation here is a little, kind of all over the place it's kind of hard to make sense of what the actual intent of this one was but um the, the problem with Puck's uh, jokes and little comments is that uh, they're usually very hard to translate because it's either cool cool stuff or jokes that are you know like obscure references to stuff Mira likes and that kind of stuff so unless yeah you know, like unless you're a Japanese national it's usually very hard to to get and uh, I think what matters here is he's just you know, uh, trying to use his own abilities and his expertise and, you know, like martial arts and whatever to fight these things. And uh, it's obviously uh, not uh, very uh, effective, you know, since he actually <laughs> like sends them on uh, Isidro and don't actually do any damage to the things. But what's interesting is that he actually uh, proceeds to explain what uh, the mega specters are, you know, how they've gathered uh, they're born from the evil of uh, those, you know, the people who have been tortured and who died in that place for so long. Is that how these kind of giant masses of evil could uh, exist? Right. It's something that I, I kind of referred to as we were proceeding through this reread in volume 20, even earlier than that, because this is, this is one of the first times that you kind of get a, a, a definitive explanation of what the mega specters are, what this kind of creeping evil thing is. It's the physical manifestation of all these, the bitterness and uh, the, the people that died of the plague. But um, also what's interesting about this section of the series that we're reading uh, in the next few episodes is that, you know, it's not just like they're an enemy to kill. These things basically become the, the medium for Femto's incarnation. It's the way that the astral and physical worlds are traversed to make this incarnation ceremony possible. It's a huge mass of evil power. And what's interesting is that the fact people, a lot of people were gathered there, a lot of people who were suffering and miserable were gathered there was another ingredient, uh, in the cauldron. Because as, you know, Puck explained, as uh, mega specters swallowed them and killed them, uh, it keeps growing stronger. Like, you know, it was strong from, uh, the previous people who had died and whose, uh, you know, spirits and evilness and whatever bitterness was lingering. And as it kills more, it grows more and more powerful and uh, uses all that evil energy is what, you know, allows Femto to come down to the world or rise up. On this same page, Puck realizes the connection that the brand has had on this whole event. And uh, he glances at, you know, the brand's bleeding and he kind of puts things together in his head. And he looks kind of troubled by that, that observation about how, why this all happened. He's worried. Uh, it's it's boss uh, wondering whether uh, the brand did contributed to bringing these things there, and uh, I think there might also be a worry that uh, you know it's not going to be easy when there's two branded uh, surrounded by these things. They basically just have to survive it out to the, to the night. It's the only way forward. Yep. Farnese also makes observations about how nothing here is seems real to her. She's still kind of grappling with the the inhuman things that are around her. She was reminded of her time with the possessed dogs. 
throughout this whole time, there's action happening, of course. Guts and them are, you know, trying to hold the masses back with flames, but one specter kind of rise, tries to rise over the flames, you know, stretching upwards, and Guts sees that happening and takes it out with his uh, sticky bombs, and it explodes. But what I like is the action continues, because the, the top part of the head, you know, is falling towards Farnese, and Gus just swats it out single-handedly with the Dragon Slayer, like using it, you know, the broad side of it to slap it, basically. He tells her to make use of herself, uh, which is kind of a, you know, really it's kind of her dynamic at this point is she's trying to find a way to help with the group. And she's uh, kind of ashamed that she's not able to do much more than survive. If she I can. think she's not yet at the point where she's ashamed. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's uh, like it's the, the beginning where he's telling her, do something, don't just stay there. And that's starting the process where she'll start wanting to become useful, I think. Right, actually, the, the next line actually gives a little bit more context to that look that she gives him. It's She's more, she's kind of like anguished because he's able to be so confident at standing against these these crazy things, but she's still learning how to stand on her feet, you know, in, in spite of all that's happening around yeah. her. Basically, Guts is like, why can't you stay on my level? And she's like, I'm just starting out, dude. <laughs> so uh, they realize that the Mega Spectres are about to surround them, so they have to... Um, a little harder so Farnese clasps her hands and she's about to pray or she begins to pray oh lord which has this really iconic moment from guts that really exemplifies his, his perspective on life you know a god isn't going to save you you have to do it yourself he says don't pray if you're if you're praying your hands are closed yeah and tells her what's what do you, what do you have in your hands you know as in you know she has a torch and with a torch she can actually do something and that's uh i think uh, really a key moment for development because she will re- remember that moment you know uh, in the future and think back on it and think at that time she was able with fire you know and of course there's a reason to fire which is a uh, very specific for her and uh, she was able to do something to to do something that matters you know not just wait for it to happen but to actually act upon the world and that's i think really the beginning of her journey towards enlightenment right and i was thinking about this this moment when i was rereading it and like you said as i think that uh since Farnese has kind of a particular relationship with fire, it made me think of how people sometimes ask like, oh, why isn't Farnese still a pyromaniac? Or why doesn't she have like, why don't they reference that anymore? And I think that this was kind of a turning point for her in her relationship with fire and that it it became a tool for her rather than just something she used to fend off her own fears. Yeah, and actually uh, her relationship with fire has been... uh uh, highlighted again, you know, usually as a, a joke, you know, that, oh, I, is yeah. it a good idea to give her, you know, fire? <laughs> so, yeah. 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 But yeah, she, I think what's different. No, no, I was just going to say that I agree, I agree with Grail uh, that like, she, you know, it's a journey that starts now and she's evolved and, uh, you know, the whole thing with fire and everything else, it was like, I mean, if you read uh, the two episodes that show her childhood, you understand where it came from. And you understand also that after she starts trying to, you know, get past her trauma and that kind of stuff, she lets that behind her because that's not, you know, who she's at the core. It's what she was doing, uh, you know, because of her cheaty childhood. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a strange observation to say, why don't they bring it up anymore? Because it's it's a part of her life that she's either surmounted or has already begun to surmount by the time she seeks out guts in volume 22. Yep. Uh, you know, fire for her was like, uh, she was basically consumed by the darkness of that moment in her childhood. And she basically gave herself into that 
you know, madness, which is what caused the mansion to burn down. So, you know, she's grown up obviously since then and, you know, tremendously so in the past couple of volumes to the point that volume 22, she has a little bit more strength of character to not give in to that kind of desire anymore. Right. And I think the misinterpretation of that is usually just that people don't understand that the fire obsession was a symptom of something much deeper. Yes. Yes. And they mistake that. They they see the tree and uh, what's that? What's that saying? They mistake the tree for the whole forest or something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That means the forest because they thought- Hey, where there's smoke, there's fire. Let's just keep using it. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> no, nah, but yeah, generally yeah. speaking, I mean, fun as it was, our characters that uh, evolves the masters across the series. And I mean, it's just, you know, it's the same. You no, know, it's the same thing as saying, oh, why Guts isn't like he was on page two of volume one. It's like, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, things change, yeah. people change, like situations evolve. So, yeah, I mean, just read the story. That's why we're yep. doing the reading. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway. What's uh, interesting? I like how Serpico kind of has a moment, yet another Serpico glance where we have to read into his, his, what this look is. But, you know, my reading of this little glance as she trembles and takes the, you know, the torch in both hands is that, I mean, I, I see it that he's noticing Farnese's transition into becoming a little bit more subordinate and not just defiant and doing her own thing. Yeah, I see. I mean, you could argue that it's the only way, but, you know, this is kind of a big moment for her. Yeah, way. and I think he's not seeing that basically it works, you know, like like Guts, you know, a style works on mm-hmm. her and probably, you know, I mean, he, he, you know, like he actually mentions it to Guts, uh, you know, a few episodes ago in uh, Elfhelms. That's like, he was surprised that Guts managed to do for Farnese what he not only could not do, but never even sought to try to do. So it's just, you know, that's a moment right. that, that matters for that. He's like, well, she's actually doing what the guy says. She's, you know, contributing. And, and on the next page, you can see them, like Isidro Farnese and Sepiku actually fighting the things, you know, going you know, right at them. Right. That's a good, that's a good point, actually. Connecting it particularly to what he said recently with that, you know, he's able, Guts is able to do what Serpico can. That makes a lot of sense with this scene in particular. Moving forward a little bit, uh, Nina finds uh, that she's rolling around in the barrel that Luca had trapped her in, and she's kind of, what's the word? Um, Shaking. Scared out of her mind. Yeah. (laughs) And knowing that surrounding her is just all this death, and um, she's succumbing to, you know, being overwhelmed by fear. But what's interesting is she kind of finds strength in her weakness as she feels the blood on her hands. And uh, suddenly, suddenly has this urge to survive, thinking about Luca, trying to be more like Luca. Yeah, it's uh, you know I've, I always found it interesting the parallel between Farnese and Nina um, in these uh, volumes, you know, in the in the chapter of the story mm-hmm. that you know Nina also tries to find strength, and eventually she she can't really find it, and she just chooses to go her own way because she knows, like in a way, she finds some small strength. And she knows that staying around Luca would be tough for her. But I, I like to see how she herself tries to surmount her weakness, you know, and um, in a way very similar to Farnese, I think, but, you know, without necessarily having the same, you know, success. Yeah. This is, we're approaching a part of the series that's, it's very difficult for me to just explain. Like so much of the visuals are like self-explanatory. I'm not going to like skip past it, but I'm, I guess what I'm saying is this is, this is one of the moments in the series where like you truly do need yeah. a visual aid to appreciate what's happening. You know, my words are going to be very scant, uh, to describe, you know, the import and the scale of what's actually happening on the page. So, 
Uh, either way, the, the tower crumbling is one of my favorite moments in the entire series. You know, the scale of it, you know, the surreal imagery of it, of these things, these monstrous things crawling up it and making out the hand, um, uh, merging the real world and the astral world, all these things. It just feels very like iconic of Berserk to me, you know, the actual action. Yeah. And, I, you know, I like, you know, if I had to comment on the visual style, I like what Mira does here is that he starts uh, with a close up on the, you know, panicked faces of people, you know, they've got these wide eyes. They're, they're you know, really terrorized and panicked. And then you, you pan out to a lot of people running up the stairs, falling down, everything is crumbling. And then you, you know, we see the, um, how to say, the, the mega specters creeping up and like devouring everybody as they fall down. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we pan out even more to the exterior of the tower as it, as it crumbles. So, and, and then we, you know, zoom back in on Guts and the group. And I just think like, just visually, that's really masterful. Yeah, and it's distinctive of a couple of moments in the series where he does do that. And it's very cool how you're kind of getting this undulating sense of what's going on because he's zooming in and panning out again, zooming Mm -hmm. in and panning out again. It's very effective. Yeah. We don't actually get the the kind of... I feel like the panels that were, were needed to grab the scale until a little bit later, he kind of holds that out until the tower actually falls yeah. in, a, in a few pages or episodes. But uh, you get you get the, the increasing sense of scale as he shows the tower leaning a little bit. And I also like that you, you get a sense of the actual action, which is that, you know, the walls of the tower begin breaking and the specter is going to creep out of it and, and then begin going up the tower as uh, things fall apart. But as soon as they break through the walls, uh, they see what's happening. And we go back to the page of the, uh, the survivors on the outside guts in them. And immediately puck is like overwhelmed by the sensations that were basically happening within the tower yeah. of you know, people being devoured and the mega specters growing. Yeah. Puck and Casca, puck and, uh, sorry, Casca and guts also sense it immediately because of course the brand Casca screams out. And then we have this uh, amazing two-page shot of the of the hand itself, very reminiscent of the eclipse, of course, with the faces all over it, so just like the eclipse. And of course, as before, you know, one finger is missing one of the God Hand members. Yeah, kind of obvious what's happening next. Um, the what's interesting about the specters is that they've the title of the episode is resonance. And it's because the the specters are all crying out with one voice. They've reached a kind of resonant fever pitch that. You know, even Guts and Casca are able to detect. They're calling out in unison. And Puck says they're calling out for one thing. And then we cut over to a picture, a very uh, awesome shot of the Behirid Apostle. As it's reflecting on they desire is what he, it desires as well. Yeah, what's interesting here is that it focuses on his body parts. Because he's, after all, a Behirid. And, you know, like that desire... We know that, you know, Beherits are activated for apostles or whatever. They're activated by desperate, uh, desperate desire, something overwhelming. And so all these souls who have that desire, it basically activates him. And you, we see his body parts. And when you, we see his two eyes, like we understand that he's, how to say, he's actually, uh, his face is, you know, moving to normalcy as he's about to, you know, like act like an actual big ass Beherit. So I found that very interesting the way Mura reveals it. And then on the next shot, you see that he's got, uh, you know, full face, normal thing. He's crying blood. And, you know, he's got the tentacles. And you were like, damn, it's like it's going down. And smiling Behirit, too. Yeah, he's at peace. <laughs> yeah. Everything will be fulfilled by one voice, he says, as the tower specters are calling out, matching his desire.
the next episode is called uh, the Sky Falls, and um, we start again with a shot of uh, Guts and the group, uh, small at the bottom of the page, and you see all the faces, you know, screaming faces uh, that go up the tower, and um, you know, Puck comments on what's going on. You know, he can feel that they're crying out, they're demanding something. And he tells Guts to look in his bag because uh, he can feel the parrot there is resonating with those voices. So it's something we see uh, just a couple times, three times actually in the series. And uh, like that's the first time and that's very, I know when I read it, I was like, oh God, damn, you know, what's what's going on? Like the event around them is so big that a parrot is actually like, you know, feeling it, you know, something's going. And we immediately see Guts feeling uh, like a huge amount of pain, which obviously is from his brand. And he actually falls down holding Casca because, you know, he feels something's going. And that's the beginning of, uh, how to say, you know, um, things are, I I forgot the word, damn, you know, like coming to... Culminating? Yeah, culminating, yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned that the other times the Behir resonates like this and mm. begins to reshape its forms. And I just wanted to list those out. You know, we see it when Salon takes form in the Cliffoth, and we see it again when Ganeshka transforms into, you know, the giant towering form. Uh, and I think it's interesting to comment on, you know, why that actually happens. You know, you, you can simply say it's resonating and I, I, I get the meaning, but to kind of break that apart, you know, it's in the presence or it senses the presence of something that, you know, either it recognizes from the abyss or you know it's it's, the, it's just the presence of evil that it is resonating yeah with, it's, either way it's a huge power and uh, i guess we could say a huge evil power you know something that's mm-hmm. big enough and you know these are usually accompanied by events that are big enough that something happens so basically yeah in the presence of a member of the god hand you know the you know behavior reacted like that and yeah in huge world-changing events like uh, here and in uh, Volume 34, it, it occurs again. So it's very significant. Anyway, yeah, we see that, you know, the, like I said, a culmination that starts and you see, you know, there's a shot of the faces and, you know, it feels like something's going up, going up. And we see again a shot of the um, double page of uh, the hand, but this time it's white. You know, it's a very interesting style that Mira doesn't use often. I, I feel like it's, I feel like it's the, the sketchy drawing, the two-page spread. You know, the, suddenly the inverse colors of the white hands are the black hand. I, I feel like it's Mira's way, particularly as we go to the next page. It's, it's his way of showing the crossing of the boundaries in the astral world that it's no longer happening just on the physical plane. That it's something more deeper is happening here. Exactly, and I really like that uh, next page where you see uh, the hand reach out. And grab like a light, you know, a light in the darkness, and you know, uh, close its fist around it. And then we see uh, the shot of the transformation. Uh, we see a baby that grows into a full adult in just a few panels. That grows hair, and just from the locks of hair, we know it's uh, it's Griffiths. And the bear it opens its eyes, say light brimming, and then you know it cracks as it closes its eyes again, and you know like the just like a chick hatching from an egg. And then we're back to the um, the hand where all the faces are spitting blood, which is, again, reminiscent, you know, with the blood and all that kind of stuff. It's uh, just like in the eclipse. And, um, and yeah, and then the tower crumbles down. Everything falls down on top of our heroes. And as it does, we get a close-up shot of Guts, which screaming, Griffiths. Mm-hmm. 
they uh we get the repetition of the prophecy from volume 17 about the sky falling at the holy ground where yep. blind sheep gather this is the page i reference one of my favorite moments is this combination of you know the the falling people and the the tower itself is crumbling and this mega specters are crumbling all this massive chaos all to bring about this person um, I, I mentioned it before I alluded to, I just wanted to like kind of make it a little more concrete about what I meant about the hand. Um, I feel like the hand here as shown by the sketchy drawing is, it's, it's like the astral representation of the hand. Similar how do we get descriptions of things existing both in the physical and the astral world. This is like the astral thing reaching out into the astral world to grab something from deep down. I like how that it's grasping as well. Obviously it's not happening physically in the world. I don't think the hand is physically moving but we're seeing the astral events happening behind the scenes. Yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, What happens here, people often call it a rebirth of Griffiths, but that's incorrect. What's happening is Femto is incarnated. So incarnate, what it means, you know, there's carne in it, like in Chile con carne, carne means meat. Inc- <laughs> oh God, wow. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> that's, that's it. Incarnate means to come into flesh. It's what happened when Jesus... You know, was born is uh, something that was a spirit, you know, got a body of flesh, a body, material body, physical, corporeal, whatever you want to call it. It got a body made of flesh. And that's what happens here. It's Femto, who was a pure spirit because his body had been dissolved during the eclipse. So Griffiths at the time disappeared and Femto was born from Griffiths. And now Femto was just a spirit. And what happened here is... That hand goes and grabs that spirit and brings it down into a body of flesh, which was a body of the demon child, which uh, the egg, the egg apostle had swallowed up. And so, because Femto is Femto, you know, that, uh, you know, deformed child turns into a baby and then turns into uh, an adult in just a matter of seconds. And when it's hatched, Griffiths is, you know, there. But it's not just Griffiths that's reborn. It's Femto who has acquired a body of flesh and he took the body he had and he made it into a Griffith's body because, you know, that's uh, how he goes. That's his style. So, yeah, it's a very significant moment. It's important to get that scene right. Chili con carne. I know. I can't, I can't get past that. I'm Amen. hungry now. Well, sorry, guys. I mean, I'm explaining it so that people can understand, you know. Mm-hmm. Meat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, incarnate, get into meat. It literally <laughs> means get into meat. So, but yeah, that's usually what I say. Yeah, that's my that's my saying. If you want flesh, you know. So, so anyway, what what I like about that, uh, you know, that scene where the tower crumbles is the scale of it because you actually see like all those things. You you get that uh, two page spread of the the people falling, the stones falling, you know, the specters falling. As we get the prophecy, like you mentioned, Walter, and then. We see our heroes, and that's falling on top of their heads. So uh, Gus actually t- tells them to get down, and then we see that blah. Then there's a huge shot at the bottom of these two pages where we see that the whole tower has fallen. So it's it's like a huge scale, and there's that enormous amount of dust. And at the time, we're like, you know, did these guys survive? You know, like how how did they survive? Uh, that's some awesome ass dust too. Yeah, just saying the the multiple the multiple levels of impact. Like you have that the sharp spiky stuff, and you have the big clouds, and then the settled clouds behind it. It's just very detailed, very pretty. What what I what I find interesting is that uh, you know we change perspectives to that of the the girls, you know the the prostitutes of Lucas group who are 
way outside the town and uh, were spared uh, all that massacre. And, you know, just then the sun, you know, rises and we see, you know, what they see, which is a shot of uh, the sun rising over the mountains. Actually, it's not what they see, but whatever. Uh, the, the sun rising over the mountains and, you know, lighting on that scene with, uh, you know, the dust and the, the destroyed, the ruins of uh, what was once uh, St. Albion. So, um, you know, pretty big-ass scale for the time in Berserk, even though in Volume 34 we got something even bigger. And uh, the episode ends with a picture of a broken statue and, uh, you know, the... Uh, emblem of the holy sea that's you know fallen down and uh, it's just with the sun you know shining there it's kind of the, the remnants of what was what was but also signaling what's to come yeah something was destroyed as something is you know rising i only have one more thing to say about this episode before we transition to the next um is that is you know all this talk about they're calling out with one voice and you know it they're really it's never really, I don't feel like it's really vocalized exactly what that one voice is. They're calling out for something. I feel like they're calling out, if I had to name it, right? This is kind of like that scene where um, Roderick asks Guts, what's Casca to you? Like the audience knows the answer to it, but it's not really ex- you know, expounded upon, right? I feel like it's calling out to God for salvation from their pain, from all this, this the horrible things they're going through. They want to be saved from something. Yeah. They won't. I would say they're calling. F- Which aligns. Go ahead. Which aligns with what the Behirat Apostle wants in himself. He wants the world to be saved. He wants salvation from God for the state of the world. Yeah, he wants a, a new perfect world, which is, it's always interesting because what what comes now is, uh, in a way, it's just a step towards a new world, which is still, you know, in the process of being created by the, the God Hand, uh, like in the, at the current uh, place in the manga. But yeah, I, I think if I had to, to say just one word for what these people want, uh, it's a savior, more specifically than salvation. And um, it fits in with the theme of the, you know, the dreams that people had of the, the Falcon of Light. You know, they saw, all of them saw a vision of a falcon who would deliver them from evil. Of course, except for Guts, who saw, you know, a falcon as Casca was, you know, being killed. But, um, you know, it was customized for each people, but each saw that, you know, there was this powerful figure that was coming. And, of course, that was a way to prepare them for its coming, to expect it, and to also wish for it. So, yeah, I think, obviously, that's what they wanted, the Savior. So with that, we transition to the next episode, which is uh, Dawn, or Daybreak, I guess is the Dark Horse translation. And so we're cutting back to the the rubble of the tower. And uh, from here, you can see a bunch of random body parts sticking out of the out of the ruins. And there's just one leg sticking out in this one part, which I think is kind of grim, but also very funny. It just... It's so unceremonious, right? It's, you know, the previous pages were this dramatic, epic, massive, you know, beautiful almost scene of destruction. And now we see the ground floor, you know, zero impact of all that. Right. And it kind of sets the tone for the episode when you think about it, because it's like, okay, we got through the the epic uh, reveal. Uh, Now it's time to get down to what our heroes are doing in a little bit more of a nitty gritty sense. And on the next page, we get a lovely uh, continuation of the sunrise from the earlier episode. And when I read this, I felt like, oh, 
well, just another night in the in the life <laughs> of the black swordsman, you know. It's it's just Tuesday. <laughs> and it's like when the when the sun rises it, it it just feels like, okay, well, we got through the last night. What's coming up for the daytime? And um I, I like that next- you know, I like that Jerome is like, you know, I mean not Jerome but um yeah, he, he's wondering, you know, if they might have just been dreaming, you know, it's like because that that you know probably that sense of peace and quiet and you know there's just a day rises is must be like so different and so you know drastic a transition from that nightmare that was at night it's a, I think it's an interesting perspective it's like night and day literally that's like the visual of the we see Jerome's reflection in the pool of blood you see the blood trickling down the bricks right. into the pool and we see his, his face there. What I, what I especially like though about this the way this episode opens is like the complex paneling on this two page spread. We have this, you know, the top panel is spanning the top uh, part, showing the the ruined tower, but also the fact that Guts and Casca are superimposed as he puts his, his cloak onto her to keep her, you know, she's you know shivering. But it's not a technique Mira has used very often before this. It's a, it really makes you stand out, like the three D effect of this happening. It's really cool. She actually does it uh, a few times throughout the story, but usually with not with full bodies, you know, with faces, that kind of stuff. We mm-hmm. we get to see that a few times. Yeah. That's true. And it is nice to see uh, Guts and Casca get another moment here. I imagine that for people reading episodically at the time, it must have been kind of incredible to to see these two characters reunited again. So it's kind of a kind of a nice revisitation, a ni- nice reassertion that these two characters are are back together. Yeah, and Guts is committed to protecting her, as seen in how he's covering her with his cloak. People are thinking, yes, they're finally back together. She tr- and this time she trusts him. <laughs> all's going to yeah. be, be perfect and great. Everything's going to be fine, guys. <laughs> it is a kind of a heartwarming moment, right? Like it's, it, it really sticks out in my mind for them being together in this state because you don't get many heartwarming moments with Guts and Casca. But here, you know, he's able to do something for her and she responds to it. You know, she doesn't, you know, Shy away from yeah, him, it's uh, what well, I like is uh, it's a very thoughtful and it feels like it's almost automatic from him, you know. She's shivering, she's cold, yeah. and he just puts his cape on her, and it feels like he's doing it without ever thinking about it. And she responds very simply to that act of kindness, and yeah, it's a very touching, simple moment. Yeah, it is. And uh, unfortunately, reading this in the context of you know, knowing what's coming up ahead, it's a little bit bittersweet, but in in the moment we must try to enjoy what we can with regards to these two. So we transition over to the next page where we're kind of shifting away from the group and we get a lovely shot of Nina emerging (laughs) from the barrel and uh, you see her coming out. Her hair is in a complete mess and uh, she's emerging uh, amidst the rubble. So she somehow survived the night before miraculously and uh, she's sh- sh- shocked that she survived as well. Uh, and then the rest of the group approaches her, seeing that she's all right. And um, she, her first thought is, how's Luca? Where's Luca? And immediately everyone starts looking for her. And uh, Nina is, you know, guilt-ridden, thinking that she might have survived and that Luca hasn't. But luckily, Luca has uh, managed to escape death once again. Uh, and uh, dove into a well, I guess, at the last minute. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
I love, I love how like comedic is portrayed too. Like she she yeah. managed to survive, but you know the detail is that she's freezing, freezing her ass off because she's in a cold well. You know, <laughs> not it's not the dramatic like I've survived. It's holy shit, it's cold. Yeah, right. that atmospheric change. Typical Luca. Typical Luca. So uh, they get her out. She just comments on how cold it is. I guess so. And you know, Jerome is trying to have a, a moment with her, but it's quickly, <laughs> quickly, quickly uh, usurped by Nina who. You know, pulls in for the BFF hug. Yeah, and this was an interesting yeah, parallel. The co- the commentary also that you know Luca was like, ah, oh, so warm, yeah. holding her close. Jerome's like, that could have been me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> While Pucky's patting him like, eh, sorry, bro. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's that's yeah, pretty good. Better look next time, buddy. Before we leave this page, though, I wanted to go back real quick. Right before Nina comes out of the barrel is this small shot with Farnese, you know, looking over at her shoulder at Guts and Casca and seeing that, you know, that's a dynamic she's going to have to get used to as well. It's not just Guts by himself as her, you know, the person she's looking to, but he also has this woman with him. And, you know, what does that mean moving forward? And it's really, I'm not even sure she's processing that right now. She's just observing that as a new you know, part yeah, of the Yeah, she sees is, those yeah. two are a, a unit. And what's, what's interesting is that even you know, Mars back behind her, Sepiko's looking at her, you know, from the side. So it's like mm. she's looking at Guts and Casca and he's looking at Farnese and that's like telegraphing what their uh, relationship is going to be for the next 15 volumes. Several layers yeah. of observation going on in one panel. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> All right. So following that, so once Luca's out and Nina embraces her, I thought it was an interesting parallel how Luca is, is just sort of musing to herself how warm Nina is and she says proof that it's worth being alive which I thought was an interesting uh, it matched what Nina was saying about her blood when she was in the barrel and I thought that was just a cool detail yeah they're both kind of thinking about that and I like that uh, you know Nina she comes out thinks about Luca first thing and that's also I think a commentary on the fact she's matured and evolved a bit and not as selfish as she once was you know Right. Yeah. It was a nice moment, definitely. A little character development there. Um, so now that Luca's back, everyone's kind of commenting on how uh, after all the craziness of last night, they're finally having a moment to to contemplate what happened and just thinking it's like some fairies <laughs> played some trick on us <laughs> and, and how they can't quite believe that they survived, I suppose. And just as I think Jerome is about to say, we were really lucky uh, there's a quick, you know, snapshot panel. It's actually Luca. Oh, Luca? I couldn't quite tell. Yeah, you'll see it in the next panel. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So just as Luca says that, there's a quick snapshot panel of something darting towards them, and Guts is just quick enough to see it coming, but isn't able to react in time. And on the next page, we see that there are several uh, spikes or pole arms that have uh, surrounded the group. And kind yeah. of trap them Javelins. temporarily. Javelins. And but uh, Luca finishes her word. She's lucky, lucky <laughs> oh, right as the I spears land. That. Oh, that's cute. But, uh, <laughs> I also like that both Guts and Serpico are quick enough to respond by covering both Casca and Farnese. You know, they're covering their bases here, right? Immediately. Meanwhile, Sidro's doing some weird like karate pose, trying to. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh. Um, just wow! Well, yeah, he's fast so, enough to dodge them, which is you know uh, pretty good for Isidro. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's also a, a key thing in his character. Is like he's not a grand hero of anything, but he's he's able to you know like get out of a tight spot. You know, right? He's holding his own. Uh, 
And so just as everyone is kind of reacting to what just happened, through the mist, we see that uh, the Bakiraka assassins have emerged. So I got to comment on this because it's fucking awesome. And, uh, you know, I, you know that's classic Mira. It's like, so this huge event just went down. It's like, you know, world-ending event, hugest thing. Yeah, I mean, like, as big as the Eclipse, maybe bigger, you know, uh, of course, for different reasons. But I mean, on a worst-case thing, enormous. And then finally it's over, they're alive. Uh, you know, we, we can, um, you know, be able to catch a break and then bam, they get attacked. The backyard is there, you know, they're surrounded by these guys. And it's like, no break, no respite. Yeah. Just, you thought, you know, you guys thought this was uh, done? No, it's not done. It's just beginning. And so, you know, I just really like that. And I like that, you know, at that point, the story, you're like, Oh, the Bakarika, when did we last see them? Oh, volume 18, eh, whatever. It's like, you've long forgotten about these guys, and but no, they're back. And, you know, it matters because it's not like, worse is just bandits or whatever. You know, it's like, no big deal. But these guys, you know, they're not pushovers, you know, like Gus can dispatch them, but they're dangerous. So pretty right. fucking cool. P- particularly in a group environment. Yeah, which is what he comments on. But yeah, I wanted to say that as well. About, about how they're introduced to this as a, as a kind of a, you know, an ingredient to the soup that's happening here at Albion is the Baki Raka are on the outskirts looking for something. And we see that happen in the very beginning. And now that arm is coming back around to, to the end here. So we, they're reintroduced, which I thought that was very cool. Yeah. And the difference is that here we see uh, two shots that show that the Skaska in the equation. And uh, things are very different for Guts. And that's also the first time we get to see, I'm mean, not the first time, but that's something we are going to see more and more as the story progresses that, uh, Guts alone can do whatever he wants. He can just, you know, but with Casca, things are more complicated. He can't just, you know, he's got to be more careful. Right. And just as the group is surrounded by the Baki Raka, that a few of them, Isidro and Puck, recognize them from the previous encounter. And of course, Guts knows who they are. And, uh, just as we kind of had that moment, we see a very familiar foot <laughs> step into the picture. And who else could it be but Silat and the Tapasa looking down on the group unbeknownst to them, just sort of observing. And uh, clearly they're in charge of this operation. So it's clever. I think it's clever of Miura to position them where he is because mm-hmm. it's not forcing a, a recognition from Guts. They're just there observing. You know, if Guts were to see him on the horizon, he might have some kind of fleeting thing, but that's not this moment. You know, right. This moment is not for that. So Mira doesn't force the issue or even bring it about. They're there behind them observing what's happening, which I like a lot. They explain why they're here because, you know, they were foretold something was happening. At the time, you don't know about Ganishka, you don't know about anything. You just know, you know, it was foretold that something was going to happen in this land and they're looking for someone. But, you know, they don't know who it is or anything like that. So, you know, it's uh, that's also, you know, it's something Mira often does. He, he plants a seed for something at some point, where you don't really understand necessarily what it means, or you know, only partially, and then it's developed much later on, and that's a moment like that. And I just think it's uh, it's pretty cool. I actually thought about what the oracle might be for them, and I, I came to the conclusion it probably was merely the Falcon of Light Dream. It's their interpretation of the Falcon of Light Dream, but it could have been, since they describe as particularly an oracle, it could have been an individual. So it could have been Daiba who interpreted it that way, or it could be Kanishko. He's an apostle. He interprets it a certain way. Yeah, we could actually uh, check it. I think in Japanese, it might be two different words for when it's a person and when it's. Uh you know, mm-hmm. uh, just an oracle as a uh, prediction. So um, yeah, I was yeah. going to ask the same thing because it 
oracle is kind of a general word. It's never directly answered in the series. You know, that's why I tend to think it's probably the obvious, which is their interpretation. They also received the dream, and their action for that was to go and seize it because they saw it as an obstacle. Or something. Uh, well, no, actually, we know later on it explains that Ganishka sends them to Ganishka to order them. To yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. Actually, he ordered all the armies. Uh, I believe, and uh, they wanted to beat the main army by because they're faster and better, so by going there first. And that's why uh, afterwards you see Christian armies, you know, arriving. So, as you guys mentioned, uh, Salat explains why they're there um, and how they're looking for a certain person. They don't know who that is, but of course, since this group is the only one alive in the entire area, they're pretty much left to just say, okay, well, this is the group we have to capture. And of course, since Silat recognizes Guts, he says to the assassins, you know, seize the group, but, you know, watch out for this guy. You know, don't be surprised about any casualties if they come up. And so uh, the assassins advance towards the rest of the group. Guts goes on offense, but he uh, explains that the women and kids should stay there, <laughs> which uh, Isidro doesn't like very much. So he proceeds to kill off several of the Bakiraka, swiftly dispatching them. Serpico is similarly getting ready to take out some, some of these guys, but mentions that it makes a funny comment, which is he'd rather be stabbed by a sword than eaten by monsters. What I like here is that, uh, you know, the fact Serpico can actually uh, kill three of them, you know, without actually getting killed, it shows, like, it reinforces the fact he's really skilled because he survived against Guts and he held his own on several occasions. But, you know, like, when you see that he can actually get three uh, members of the Bakirka together, wow, this guy, you know, like, he's really no pushover. And I think that's well contrasted with uh, what goes on with Jerome, where he can parry a guy, but, you know, he's hit on the shoulder, but his, you know, uh, armor protects him. And, you know, as a guy is about to stab him in the face, uh, Isidro saves the day by, you know, throwing a large rock on his face. So, but, you know, like uh, a guy that's pretty good, but nothing more like Jerome would have been just, you know, killed. While right. Serpico, like, you know, like he shows that he's, you know, really uh, a step above, you know, or more like two steps above. Jerome comments on it and he says he's been faking all along. So, you know, the act Serpico has been putting on, he's finally showed his hand that he's actually a very capable warrior. Yeah, of course. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I thought this was a, a kind of a cool moment because it does kind of set the tone and the the scale of the fighting ability of Guts and Serpico in comparison to other people. Because, of course, we know how incredible Guts is, but Serpico has got finesse. And I like how his blade is just shown as a blur taking out these three guys. Meanwhile, Jerome, like you guys said, is, you know, pretty decent, but uh, he's just barely able to make it along with Isidro. Uh, so in the next panels... Serpico just comments on how, you know, personal feelings aside, he feels very lucky that Guts is here to help out. But at the same time, they're feeling overwhelmed. And uh, Guts agrees and silently thinks to himself that they have the extra complexity of trying to make sure that the women are safe while trying to make sure they survive. And on top of that, they've been up all night. So there are a lot of there's a lot of factors going into the complexity of this fight. Guts realizes that's an untenable situation. Like they can't continue on at yeah. this, this rate. So right. like, you know, thankfully things do change for the scenario. Just as he sings that, you know, two lasso come in and actually, you know, capture the women, which is exactly what he was afraid of. So pretty on the nose. Right. Right on cue, uh, the women are captured. And, you know, just as Guts and, and Serpico are looking on, and before an assassin is able to do anything... 
we see a very familiar uh, <laughs> spiked spiked staff come into play, braining braining a Bakiraka assassin. And who could it be but my man Azan? And uh, here he is wearing a very uh, very rugged looking bandana, <laughs> which I yeah. thought was a nice touch. Otherwise, he's looking pretty Coach good. Snake. He looks right. pretty pretty badass. And you know what I love is that he's very like it's really faithful to his character. Whereas the guy is about to say, you know, the back character is saying, if you make right. any move, I'll kill the, the women and children. And he's like, taking women off stage, you know, like, you really are <laughs> savages. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Not great. knowing the ways of battle. Yeah, he, I thought this was a great return for this character because it was, like you said, very, very on point for his uh He's actually, yeah, yeah. What's badass is that he's actually the only guy who survived out in the open. He actually, like, know. you know. Mm-hmm. Guy's it's invincible. Incredible. Yeah, and not only that, his ornamental chain is still in place. He's got, a, you know, his sleeve is a little frayed up, but otherwise, he looks pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. a shock. So, of course, the group is shocked. Similarly, just like the reader, and they're asking him, "How the hell did you survive?" And he says, "Details can wait. <laughs> Let's deal with the situation at hand." So, uh, he he comments to guts how you know. He's just been gone a little while, but strange things have been happening, which is the understatement of the entire volume. Uh, but, you know, Guts gives him a... I do love this. Mm. I love this dynamic between Guts and him, you know, who once fought, you know, dueled, and now they're fighting alongside each other. You know, used to be the guy that were hunting, and here they are helping each other out. Yeah. Right. I just love the, 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 you know, kind of silent, you know, acceptance of this dynamic change. Yeah, yeah you I see don't think the irony is lost on them. Guts, you know, smirking, which, you know, I find pretty cool. Yeah. 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 He, he, I think he, I mean, even before, that was his attitude towards his own. He kind of appreciates his, his attitude yeah. towards things. Right. Yeah, yeah because he's not faking it, you know? Like, right. I think when you see Guts, history of knights and, and nobles and that kind of stuff, you know, a lot of them are just, you know, phonies. And he knows Azan is a real deal. So, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so, in the next page, we get a, another kind of zoomed out panel just showing the the dire situation that's going down right now. The entire group is surrounded by Bakiraka uh, assassins, uh, just, you know, several of them. And just as it's about there, they're about to close in. Uh, A rumble. The show that we got some rumble action and, and, you know, things are shaking. And at this point, we don't know what it is until you turn the page. And like the Kool-Aid man, Zod busts through the wall of of the ruin, <laughs> and I, I love this moment because you can kind of see the scale here, and the and the Baki Raka are just like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. And it's not yeah. just the Baki Raka; yeah, it's, it's, it's a reader as well, because you know, as I was saying earlier, we got that huge event, then the Baki Raka attack, and you're like, you know, oh, it's gonna be a fight, but no, no, Zod comes up, and you're like, yeah. damn, again, <laughs> you know, it's like, he's done it again. So, right. yeah, awesome stuff. It's it, great. I mean, it kind of goes without saying, right, but it, it does remind me of when, you know, Skull Knight broke into the Eclipse, you know, busting through the wall, running towards them. Oh, yeah, that of is course. kind of a funny parallel, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, just when you think shit couldn't get any crazier, here comes Nosferatu Zod. And so the Bakiraka, of course, have no idea how to take this because I don't think they are familiar with the concept of apostles yet. 
or maybe they I, are. I don't know. I don't know. Well, maybe they are. They give they give they, they give it a name, and it seems like a very unique thing. I think they might have have had exposure to apostles. Yeah, that's a problem. But uh, maybe not. Maybe I mean they still look terrified either way. Yeah, yeah. their faces so. just uh, kind of reminded me of when Guts first saw Zod. That's all. Yeah, mm, true. I'm gonna true. say they know one thing is that they're shitting their pants, and uh, I think that's a <laughs> that's a proper reaction. You know, like I mean, you yeah. even if you know everything about apostles, you know Zod just you know like explodes out of a wall behind you. Yeah, you probably should be shitting your pants. I mean, <laughs> it is an appropriate. I also, reaction. think we give. I think we have to give Mira even more credit here because Azil, you were just commenting on several pages ago about how the scene had finally settled after this massive chaotic thing. Then the Bucky Rocker arrive, and then suddenly the tables are turned yet again. The dynamic of the fight changes yet again with the arrival of Zod. So Mira is just like piling on. Yeah. How the things change. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. And if you were following episodically, little would you know that things are about to get even crazier. But so Zod seems single-minded here, and he's not really paying attention very closely to what's going on around him. But everyone's just commenting like, what the hell? And of course, Guts recognizes him uh, immediately, saying, oh, Zod. So uh, Zod lets out a a big uh, roar by the looks of it and tramples forward. Uh, heedless of the people nearby, so the Baki Rocker quickly getting out of the way. But, you know, in the next page, Guts is wondering, why is he here? And, uh, but in the meantime, what, were you going to say something? I was just going to say, I think it says something that Zod's here not slaughtering. He's here for a purpose, yeah. you know. Mm. There are several several panels of him just kind of, you know, he's not doing his thing. He's single-minded. Just slaughtering dozens of people. Right, right yeah. He's there for, a and I think right. yeah, he's just he's also just wondering like why would a guy like Zod, you know, be in here in that time at that time? Mm-hmm. What, what I like is that while uh, Gus is preoccupied with Zod's appearance, Azan is like, we should be going. Like this is our time to fucking right. yeah. takes a moment. Yeah. I actually so- love this moment because Guts is preoccupied with his own you know inner thoughts here. Meanwhile, Azan is able to take the reins and kind of be the party leader for just a moment. Trying to steer everybody away where it's safe while, you know, chaos is going on amidst the chaos. So just as they're about to slip away, Guts looks over his shoulder and uh, happens to look over and seeing a a, a mysterious (laughs) rider uh, up on the wall. And just as we're zooming in, we happen to see that it's, of course, the Skull Knight. And I I actually really love this sequence of panels because it zooms in. And you just get the the kind of the building crescendo and it's it's white surrounding them. It's fucking cool. I mean, this is crazy. It's a cool. This is one of those like spine tingling moments in the series. He just points. You know, he yeah. points and he points because he knows Guts is looking. So it's just, and it's perfect. Yeah. Guts felt him with a brand or whatever. And the guy is just pointing. And then, yeah, yeah, like you said, that, that you know, those shots of Gus turning to to face, you know, where he's pointing, just amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. Yeah. And just as Guts this was turns. one of the most pain. Go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, just as Guts turns, it's like, see you next episode, guys. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Is that, was, is that not I the most painful this, thing? The cliffhanger. I remember this cliffhanger, and it was one of the most painful cliffhangers because we knew what was going to be on the horizon or who was going to be on the horizon rather, but we didn't know, of course, how it was going to be portrayed. All those things, you know, just particularly the the last panel, the way it's kind of an action sequence oh after God. all the stillness oh, wh- and the pointing and it was a fucking right. huge I, I just have sure. it written in my notes here, like episodic readers at the time must have been going, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, 
No, it wasn't a surprise. It was just like a huge moment. You know what's yeah. what's great is that I'm sure at the time there was some media who thought Zod was going to be fighting Griffiths. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I like, I'm, I guarantee you there was an idiot who was thinking that. It's uh, just I don't think so. I don't remember that. I don't remember that. <laughs> well, you got to find out who has the higher power level first. Yeah, it's just I oh, mean man. it's just the story of of Berserk, you know, and predictions where you've always got these guys with the stupidest ideas and you know. It wasn't that was interesting as a back then. I don't want to go too long on a tangent, but like it, the speculations were not that like out there. It was we were the series was coming out at such a pace, like two every two weeks, that we didn't really need to spend time on like super elaborate theories. Yeah. It was just like, yep, yep, it's gonna be fucking rad was mostly most of the confidence. And I know we've covered this so, before, yeah. but in terms of art style and the speed at which these episodes were coming out, it's just phenomenal to think about. It boggles my mind. Boggles my mind. Yeah, it was crazy time. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think Mira was in his, you know, I wouldn't say prime, but he was really churning them out, and uh, yeah, obviously that took a toll. You know, I mean, it's uh, really tough work. It's not sustainable. Yeah. One of my absolute favorite episodes of the of the whole series, uh, both the, the 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 scale of what's actually happening, but also the way it's shown. You know, this has some of the b- most beautiful two page spreads in the series, I think. Uh, but also like, leading up to this moment, there's a couple things I wanted to say, which was um, during this time, Huxtenshaw would put out single page previews of the episodes. So for the past, I don't know, ten or twelve episodes or so, the week bef- the week that the episode would land came out on a Friday. On the the previous Friday, you would get a single page. Usually it was the first page. Sometimes it was the first panel of the first page of the, of the upcoming episode. Uh, but for this one, they did it with something special. They actually had like its own little special landing page. And it was just a single picture of Griffith. Um, and I'll post it as the episode, you know, picture. But it was lots of hype for that moment. It was a, uni- a, uni- a unique painting of Griffith with his head kind of raised. And it was a painting. And I'll post it in the thread as well. But uh, yeah, it was a really, really cool, cool moment to be following the series. And just to see that land as the episode preview, it was really awesome. Um, And that's one of those paintings that's not been collected in an art book, which is pretty frustrating, but that is what it is. Um, Yep. This is one of also one of those episodes where the visuals truly lead or lend lend an atmosphere or or an emotion to the scene. You know, that that often happens in Berserk, but because of the scale of what's happening and the use of the two page spreads and also the lack of dialogue for a lot of the episode, it really, you know, really issues a kind of emotion of awe throughout the whole episode. It's one of those special ones and it's made more so special by the opening page of this episode, which is a very highly detailed sketch of, of guts such that we've never really seen them drawn like this before. Um, and, you know, if you fast forward 20 volumes or so, well, I guess just 10 volumes, it's close to the style that he adapted, like, you know, mid-volume 30 to the level of detail that's there. But either way, it sticks out here as very detailed. It's obviously spent a lot of time on it to render this kind of in awe, haunted, whatever it is, expression of Guts. I feel like he probably wanted to capture all the things that Guts was feeling when he sees this, you know, person again in his life. And it's not immediately the anger that you might expect it's it's surprise and uh in awe of the spectacle of it i would imagine yeah i think uh, Al really puts it well it's like his mind is blown he's like 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so after the guts, we have the, this, these gorgeous two-page spreads. And what I really like about this is the, the zoom-in effect. So we see these birds on the horizon through the kind of the, the gateway, the, the doorway, the remnants mm. of the doorway. And uh, we zoom in, we see the birds from afar. And then we go super close to see the birds as the shining from the sun. Within, and then we see the hair with the feathers before we see the full two-page spread of Griffith. Uh, eyes up, uh, chin up with just a pale white background. This gorgeous shot of him looking even you know more beautiful or more supernatural than he did before. Like a perfect rendition of Griffith. As we have more two-page spreads of this full-body shot, we have also I like the, the effect that Mira chose for this is a full-body shot with the sunlight, kind of the effect of the, I don't know what you call it, specular lighting of the sun behind yeah. him. Okay, it's kind of a texture to it, along with the, um, the the feathers. The presence of the sun in this in this episode, it's always paired with Griffith, right? Uh, even even previously, the, the sun dawning on this. And I, I thought it was very symbolic of, you know, this is the, the new age for the world as well. The sun is here and you know, Griffith is here with the, the, new, the new sun. Yeah, very symbolic. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone's eyes are transfixed. There's some, there's some narrator text, uh, you know, not super rare, but somewhat rare narrator text. You know, at that moment, all who were there forgot mm-hmm. to breathe. Their eyes were tra- transfixed as they watch the events unfold. Everyone st- stands there still, except for Zod. You can see him going towards the horizon with Griffith just kind of silhouetted there. Guts himself just says his name, which Farnese catches. And Guts still, he's not reacting really. He's just in shock uh, at what he's seeing. And Zod takes one step towards Griffith, you know, looks at him and then bows his head, you know, kind of growls a little bit, uh, makes some kind of sound at least as he's bowing down, which is a very big moment for this character, of course, you know, who has been mercenary in his, you know, pursuit of battles. And here he is, you know, in servitude to a member of the government. Yeah, I made fun of the idea that we would fight Griffith, but, uh, you know, actually the fact he kneels down in front of him, I think he's a huge... Really a huge moment. I mean, it, you know, the relationship is kind of settled uh, when Zod has a, a Falcon of Light dream. And, you know, he takes a shot, which uh, the Falcon actually kind of encourages him to. And uh, he gets absolutely, like, you know, crushed and loses his horn permanently in the process. Uh, but, yeah, still, you know, to actually see him kneel, you're like, oh, that's really, like, it's really the start of a new age, you know. And... Mm. And the fact we don't even see Griffith's face, we just see his mouth, you know, he's like, he's expecting it. And it's very, 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 you know, and he actually like puts up his hand and touches his brow, you know. Like like anointing him basically or accepting him. Yeah. Um, but what I also like about the sequence with Zod is that it wordlessly answers the question of, so now there's a God hand member in the flesh. What does that mean? What's What, what are the implications of that? And the implications are, of course, that apostles bow before yeah. him. And, beca- and, you know, and what does that mean? You know? Yeah, I was just going to say, because Zod is bowing, you know that every single one of them is right. going to bow. Right. So uh, immediately, Miura has introduced the dynamic of you know what it means to have a Godhand member in the flesh. So I also like the contrast of visuals between Griffith and, and Zod and that two-page spread of him where he has his hand on him. You have this like kind of like, you know, you know, perfect flesh of Griffith on one side, and you have this like very detailed fur on the other side. Yeah. It looks very like you know, angelic and demonic. Yeah, and um, Griffith is um, you know pretty skinny, very slim and stuff, and you got that huge monster next to him, but who's like you know a cat being petted by his uh, 
master. So <laughs> yeah, one thing you, you didn't mention that we see on the previous page is uh, the eggshell. You know, the broken shell of um, oh, good point. Uh, yeah, yeah, of the buried apostle. And so I think you know we, we get to see that one shot that kind of answers wordlessly the fate of. Uh, of the egg apostle and uh, yeah i think it's pretty cool to show that yeah that's what happened to him as this whole you know mm. uh, femto was incarnated into that new body well now guts has finally dropped his shock and he's able to actually have a reaction that we kind of expect right and he we see this gorgeous two-page spread is four horizontal panels where at first he's rushing towards you know almost inhuman in his anger but then what I like about this is the way the lighting works. Like you see this creeping white light come behind him as he hears the sound mm. of Casca making noises. And it, this is the, it, this is now the new dynamic for, for Guts. Is, you know, the, his enemy is right in front of him, but he can't go forward because Casca <laughs> is also a factor in, in how he proceeds. Yeah. So he has to stop Make- what stop for her. But also what's interesting here is, is we've commented on before is really Casca is saving him. You know, she doesn't know it and he doesn't, Guts might not know it either. But if Guts were to rush at Muzad right now, it, w- it would not have probably gone. Very yeah, well. it would have been the end of him. And like, I mean, even if we weren't for that, you know, uh, Femto could have just snapped his finger and just, you know, killed him. I mean, sure. he would have bled to death probably before he could strike. So, yeah. Yeah. But in any way, Casca, this is one of the many times that, you know, Casca's presence in the dynamic changes. What, what? One acts, thing so. I like about this scene, and it's that's very vicious, is that um, he stops dead in his track because Casca's making noises. And uh, we'll mm-hmm. see later on that he goes back. At the time, you think like, oh, she's calling to him because he's leaving her, you know, and she's scared to be alone. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least that's how I took it when I read this. But later on, we see that's not the case. And that's very, um, very hard for him to understand because he doesn't know and he still doesn't know, I guess, uh, to this day, uh, why she's making those noise and why she's reaching for uh, who she's reaching for. Yeah, mm. it kind of speaks to his fear, yeah. right? That she's calling out to Griffith because she's responding to Griffith. Yeah. And that the pain that you know he felt is she somehow immune to. He, it, he could never accept that if that were the case, and that's kind of what I think what he's responding to. Yeah, it's a, to. it's a confusion, it's a but though. yeah, we're not even there yet, so let's let's just. Yeah, sure, sure. So yeah, then we have uh, the ep- <laughs> the dialogue of the episode begins in full with uh, Silat saying, you know, immediately, you know, very little hesitation that we must capture him. And we get a little bit of exposition that we still kind of use to this day to inform, you know, what the Bakiraka are, right? It talks about how uh, their clan was expelled and now this is a chance to reclaim themselves and reintroduce themselves to Kushin society. So they can't not take this action before the main army arrives they have to seize this now or there'll be there will be no chance to reclaim their their state status in the society yeah and i like that shot of zod you know like his eye looking and he rising up and mm-hmm. you're like oh boy this isn't going to end well yeah zod's like i was made for this yeah shit. Like, look, look, at that. look at that page yeah and of course i love that two page of this finally able to unsheath his claws and actually go to action. He just fucking tears into them one claw. They're just, you know, he was made for this. Yeah. <laughs> we get a few panels of everyone else in the group escaping, which will uh, kind of bleed into uh, 176 in the next episode. But Asidro calls over to Guts and Casca, but they uh, still have their conflict. So Casca's still calling out to Griffith or reaching out to Griffith or what she thinks so uh, I'd like to comment on that because so Guts goes back to her and grabs her and then he sees uh, on that page that she's reaching actually towards Griffiths, you know, uh, 
and uh, and you see the look at his face is he's like he doesn't understand you know um and of course you know uh, i think it's fair to explain to people uh, that in volume 22 we get to realize that uh the demon child whose body was used to create this new griffith's body for femto he still exists in there somewhere and uh Casca, she was always able to uh, instinctively know he was there even when she couldn't see him she could feel it uh, in her brand and so she doesn't know anything about her previous life she doesn't know who God is she doesn't know who Griffith is she doesn't know who anybody is Rickert or whatever but as she sees Griffith there what she recognizes and what she sees is her son because regardless of his you know physical form she can feel it's her son so that's some things that uh still going to play a big role in the story uh, in the future uh but yeah at, at that moment it, i find it very interesting that uh you know it, it causes confusion and pain to guts because he doesn't get what's going on and you know to the reader he doesn't necessarily understand what's going on either he's like wow why, why is she calling to griffiths what the fuck is going on man and, uh, and then that, that's explained in Volume 22. And I think that's appropriate that that reveal was done in that way because the reader is also, as you say, left in the dark. We're kind of responding just like Guts might respond when we see Casca calling to Griffith in this kind of helpless, pleading way. Yeah. Uh, and the answer is given, us to, given to us later in a more kind of appropriate spacing. Yeah. And it's... Um, putting everything it, together. It's almost vicious because, you know, the way she's calling to him is... Uh, that's how she always calls to her son, you know, when, like, for example, when, you know, she was yeah. boring, Gus was holding him back or, you know, even for, with the Moonlight uh, Boy and everything. So, yeah, it's just, like, if you pay attention and you guess and whatever, you, you might be able to find it. But, you know, at that time, uh, I doubt uh, anybody could, you know, so. No way. It was, that was not on the menu for people, <laughs> people's perception yeah. at the time. Um, Guts is looking at Griffith on the horizon and you see at one panel of Griffith, you know, kind of putting his head down and then Guts gets another glimpse as Griffith turns to face uh, this, the, the page and thus Guts. They, they actually make eye contact is what the implication of that panel exchange is, I think. And what I remember being struck by is just how, you know, kind of unnatural or inhuman he looks. He looks like some kind of otherworldly being. Um, and also the he, he doesn't really look human right. anymore. I mean, just the shape of his pupils, everything... He looks like, you know, yeah, also worldly, definitely. Right, yeah. And the pupils was was definitely another big moment was, you know, showing that the shape is a, akin to Apostle's eyes as well, which was a new thing, of course, for yeah. him. Uh, kind of the signifier of being imbued with evil, of course. But also, you know, this is one of the strangest panels or pages of the new the new Griffith Femto, uh, you know, that we've gotten and probably will ever get. It's just a very emotional shot or atmospheric shot more than a realistic shot, which I really like. Also kind of aided by the, the effect in the background, which I, ca- I kind of imagine is just there for effect and it's not really a part of reality really, but also it might just be because it is dawn, you know, you're getting that kind of golden hour light, that golden light that comes from, you know, 5 a.m., 6 a.m. or so. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, um, and yeah, definitely start aside for, I think, uh, effect, you know, definitely. yeah, because two guts, you know, that exchange of glares is a really momentous time. Yeah, next episode is called uh, Starting uh, a Journey with a Resolution, which uh, Darkos translated as Determination and Departure. Uh, 
The point is that they depart uh, with a resolution. They make a resolution, you know, to depart. And it refers to to Nina, I believe, but also to Guts, to the others, to many of the characters here. So uh, we see the characters uh, trying to escape, you know, as fast as they can uh, because they understand that things are uh, pretty, you know, serious. Uh, so you see uh, Luca wondering where Casca uh, and the Black Swordsman are and, you know, wondering that they're still there. Isidro tries to rush to get them back, but uh, Jerome, you know, stops him uh, be- because he knows he's going to get killed. And then, you know, we see Azen's uh, face reacting Farnese, Serpico, everything, and you know, like there's that bottom shot of Isidro and Jerome who are freaking out as they themselves realize. And you know, <laughs> we get that double page of the huge Crucian army arriving, and they're like, fuck! You know, so yeah. you kind of, you know, it's still that theme of, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire, and out of the fire into a bigger fire, and out of the bigger fire into the lava, you know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> where does it stop? So, yeah, you got that shot. I like, I like the shot of them at the bottom, you know, and that huge army, you know, uh, amassed and coming. And it's like, you know, it's pretty serious now. It's, it's yet another way of, though, you know, we, we knew this cushion with threat was out there somewhere on the distant horizon, you know, not here, but now it has arrived in full force. You know, we got a glimpse of it in volume 17, but it's always kind of existed in the periphery of the story. We've never, this is our first real up close look at the, of the at the army and what, what the threat of the army really means. Yeah, and uh, when the Silat is telling his men that you know the main army is uh, is coming, you don't necessarily expect that they are actually right behind them. But um, yeah. so what's interesting here to me is that at the time you don't really understand it, but this shows you how important it was to Ganishka that uh, they tried to stop Griffiths before anything started because Ganishka knew it was coming as an apostle mm-hmm. so uh, it's interesting that you know he really tried to uh you know uh kill the chick in the egg so to speak uh but you know couldn't couldn't do it so anyway uh we also got another uh two-page spread on the you know uh, next page so we get to see these cushion banners the horses i, lo- I love that shot of the elephant stomping you know you see that uh foot stompings and the elephant roaring and, you know, then that very detailed uh, panel at the bottom with uh, elephants, the soldiers, everything in full cushion garb, uh, historically accurate stuff. Um, very, very, very nicely done. Very nicely etched. Yeah, I really love I love the designs of all the, the armor and the helmets in particular that really, you know, the, it's kind of the their, their eyes are covered by the chain coif. They can see through it, but it's still covering their eyes. Yeah, like that. and um, really a cool. few months back, I was uh, at the Metropolitan Museum of Arts uh, in uh, New York City, and um, you can actually see, uh, you know, uh, those armors and uh, even the horse armor are on display in uh, in some yeah. Of the sections. And uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty nice. Like you, you can tell, it's a, one of the example of uh, Mura's uh, attention to detail in that he does, you know, European type armors very realistically and bases them on actual uh, armor styles and he does the same for other cultures so in this case uh, the Kushans um, and yeah very very nice so uh, we back to the characters who are basically ducking they're, they're slightly below the main army so they actually go unseen which is lucky for them and um, yeah Jerome is still holding on to Isidro as he tries to you know get away from his grasp but uh, they actually managed to let them pass, you know, while they remain unseen. 
And um, at the time, we see Isidro and Jerome being surprised, and they actually see Zod flying in the sky, and uh, we get a zoomed-in shot of uh, Griffiths on his shoulder, just, you know, relaxing, chilling out. Yeah, I love the, the nonchalant, bent-to-bent knee. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, whatever, big deal. So, um, and yeah, I also like the way Mira uh, did uh, the kind of cliff style or canyon style mountains you know on the upper shot i think it's a uh, very nice not an effect uh, we see very often so then we get an even closer shot of griffiths relaxing he's like even more relaxed and um <laughs> you know them they're wondering farise we get to see a shot of farise looking at the bottom and she says it's something not human so it's interesting because farise is aware of the prophecy uh you know from back in uh volume 14 so all that kind of stuff you know, it's uh, background information that might come into play mm-hmm. soon in the future. Who knows? Yeah. Also, that in that same shot, you know, Luca is there too, and she's living in that guy's city now. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Good, good shot. It's all coming so, together. Yep, exactly. <clears throat> so you know, n- then they get uh, they hear the commotion from behind them. So they're like, again, what's going on? <laughs> and then they see a, a horse, you know, going through the army and we get a shot of Isidro who's like flabbergasted, like, what the fuck? And then we, we, we zoom in on Guts, who's actually slashing down, you know, <laughs> the guys from the army and he's actually escaping with Casca in the midst of the army because, you know, that's just, that's whole Guts rolls, you know, he yeah. just, mm-hmm. you know, he wasn't going to go by foot, you know, so. Grab a horse and let's go. <laughs> yeah, let's just, like, cut in the middle of this army, who gives a shit? <laughs> so, you know, and um, and yeah, we actually see um, you know a shot of uh, his horse disappear behind the you know the, the terrain with oh. arrows flying. And um, Bef- before that, though, like I love that two-page shot of guts slashing through and Casca clutching on and Puck holding Puck, the reins. Puck's, Puck's doing yeah, driving, driving here. Oh, uh, that's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, that part is uh, you know. I mean, it's. It's a nice touch because Puck, you know, he's always there. He's always uh, the wingman, you know. Li- he's literally the wingman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and yeah, we see the, the group, you know, uh, rejoicing that uh, they're okay. And, you know, so because, like, can just one guy escape, you know, that large of an army? And Luca is like, eh, don't worry, it's him, you know. So, and, and I like that she, you know, I, I find it cute that she's confident he'll do whatever it takes to protect Skaska, you know. I think she it shows that she's um, understood him well, you know. Uh, the same way Sidro is confident he's not going to die because he wants to collect on his debt, or at least a perceived debt that he thinks God owes him. So that's actually uh, kind of a shot at what, uh, you know, will go on when they'll be reunited. Her line, Luca's line about Guts here, protecting Elaine, it's actually what she takes to mean whenever uh, she brings it up with Rickert uh, in volume 38 as well. She yeah. mentions this, this line as well about protecting the one you love. She, she, she knew a man like that once she says something like that. Yeah. Uh, and it's referencing this kind of scene is her knowledge of guts and Casco. Of course. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. That experience, which is a pretty cool reference at the time because, you know, see that's there. Rickett, everybody. It's yeah, a, totally. it's a very, yeah. It's like, Who's this guy we all keep referring to? <laughs> yeah, and Luca, and I didn't mention it before, but, you know, Scylla had met Luca before, or they were in the same, within 20 feet of each other anyway, in this previous scene here, but there's no... Yeah, and then, you know, it's it's pretty fun because, uh, I mean, whatever. I I imagine Isidro asking Rickert if uh, he knew the 100 months later, you know, with Guts, you know, leaning back on the... So, 
We leave Gus and Casca there, and uh, which is, you know, that's interesting. This whole part of the story, we focus a lot on characters that are not Guts, nor even necessarily main characters, you know, like guys in the background. And that's also the case here. We see Guts and Casca escape. We see uh, Griffith going away on top of that. And then we get this, I guess it could, you could call it an epilogue. And so we see the characters, uh, yeah. they're on a kind of outcropping, and they're looking down, and they see that... Uh, a few people, not many, but a few people survived. And, you know, uh, Jerome comments on the fact that uh, it's kind of ero- ironic that uh, those who clung to God and uh, took refuge in the tower died, uh, either devoured or when it collapsed. But the, the guys who did not believe and got away from the tower actually uh, survived. So, you know, it's, you know, he's a... Uh, Highlighting the fact that he's probably not gonna be very uh, faithful, you know, he says not gonna pray ever again at this point. <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, Luca contradicts him. She's uh, you know picking flowers and she contradicts him, and she says trying to go on living is different than trying to escape from fear, and that those who acted just to live to, till the end without losing themselves to fear uh, are the ones who survived properly. So it's not just you know uh, running away from danger is trying to survive, you know, deliberately. It's also not being, not letting your, your judgment be clouded by faith or fear, you know, also acting, you know, for your, for yourself. Staying well. pragmatic. Um, so yeah, she says, we don't know what God is thinking, but both fortune and misfortune are thrust upon people. So it's funny because it's actually kind of similar to what, you know, Void says in volume five, you know, about how people, you know, to escape the faith, you know, the fate that, you know, imprinted upon them. So anyway. The thing that Jerome was espousing was basically the cynicism of like, you know, well, God basically fucked us here and yeah. uh, I'll never believe in God or I'll never pursue faith again. And, and like you said, Luca contradicts him by basically saying it wasn't, we can't know God's ways, but it wasn't God here that, you know, humans were clouded by fear and that's what happened. Those, are, those that survived weren't clouded yeah, by fear. Yeah, it sort of matches up with that phrase, God helps those that help themselves. So you keep seeing that prop up in this. Sure. Yeah, it's a um, it's a good point in that uh, the way Jerome depicts it is kind of uh, it's all black, you know. It's like yeah, like you said, God fucks this guy, but she's right. like, eh, not really. It's just you know, you get you get dealt a good and a bad hand, and you you gotta you know navigate through that. So um, anyway, then uh, Nina asks uh, Luca what uh, flowers for, and she says it for the chick that died within the egg, died without ever hatching, without ever meeting or knowing anyone. A lonely one like him sleeping alone under all that trouble. And she pays him tribute. And of course, she's referring to the Beherit Apostle. As she lets that that little bouquet go in the wind. There's one more line that she says I thought it was very relevant, which was, people exist within a domain that is theirs and wish to act. It reminded me of what Flora says about how causality may exist, but humans are the ones that make the decisions and in, in how, they, how they choose to respond to those things yeah. as well. Which is very similar to what Luca espouses here. I agree. <clears throat> so um, I, I like that, you know, she pays tribute to him because, uh, to the Beherit Apostle, because she wants at least one person to remember that he existed, you know, which is what he was saying would not happen, that no one would ever know. And that's why he brought her uh, to his lair. Right. But then she says, you know, she reflects, if his wish was granted, what's in store for the world? Which is actually the big question at the end of this volume is, What's going to happen to the world now? Because, you know, his wish was pretty drastic to erase it and, you know, create a perfect world instead. And then she's like, hey, yeah, it doesn't really matter what I think of it. And uh, she moves on to things she can actually, uh, you know, take care of. 
on that note, uh, Isidro runs runs off, you know, telling them to take care. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I like that as he's trying to run off and look cool, uh, you know, uh, one of the prostitutes tell him that uh, he can have a, a freebie as a thanks for helping them. He's like, <laughs> that cuts him off in his run, you know, <laughs> from... Um, he, he, he loses his momentum. <laughs> yeah, from the, you know, reattribution of blood flow um, by his body, you know, redirection. I love that they knew they knew exactly what to say to, like, tease him. And it worked really yeah. Much. And he's like, he'll keep that in mind. So, um, <laughs> so as they, these guys watch, they actually watch the main character goes, you know, like all these people who are left are you know, kind of the, the, you know, side guys. The girls say, it would have been nice to say goodbye to Elaine. They wonder if she'll be okay. And uh, Luca reiterates that as long as God is with her, there's no worry. That he didn't even, wasn't even bothered by Mosgus. <clears throat> and then she reflects on the fact that the power to be, and that's also an important part of the, very important part, the power to protect someone and the power to be with someone are different. And um, it's not the same as what the Skull Knight tells him, but it, he can't do everything at once. And it's not the same to uh, having been with someone like Aska when she was awake and protecting someone when she's mentally ill and uh, vice versa. So I think it's a pretty deep uh, sentence. I don't know what you guys think. I think she's basically striking upon the conflict that's to come between Guts and Casca, you know, that even though they're reunited, they haven't necessarily worked themselves out as a couple yet. You know, Casca still has a long way to go before she can accept cuts. And, you know, it's, it's just kind of the beginning of them reuniting as a couple, not the ending. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> and so, uh, we get to see, you know, she discards that, uh, uh, you know, as well, saying, ah, she's being too maternal. And uh, Luca reflects, uh, it ma- sorry, Nina reflects, it makes her think that Luca's the one who's really strong, you know, and because she's always worrying about others. She then thinks to herself that she could never, never be like her, never be like Luca. She just realizes, you know, uh, by seeing this kind of display of bravery and thoughtfulness that she's, you know, like she realizes how disgraceful and foolish and how weak she is. And so she goes away for a bit and uh, they, they ask her what she's doing and she just says she's going to, you know, uh, go for a little walk or whatever. But before they transition, though, it's interesting, it's interesting that she basically, in those panels, had committed herself to staying by her Luca's side. And, you know, in a few pages, she'll change that after she encounters Joachim. But, you know, her encounter with Joachim changed her perspective on what she was going to do next. I actually wasn't uh, there yet, but but yeah, she, she says she's going to, you know... Uh, so she she thinks to herself that she'll stay at Luca's side and listen to her, and you know let her protect her, and that it's the best thing for her. You know, basically, she she abandons the idea of being as strong as Luca or being like her, and uh, you know how to say decides to just be content, uh, you know, to be protected and try to stay with her and just not be a bother. And be then passive, yeah. Pretty much, she she's happy to to just you know be a lackey and try to not be as bad as she was before, and then you know someone calls out to her, and she sees it's Joachim, and um, so she actually she's surprised you know he's alright and everything, and they actually have the moment of reunited, re, how to say um, they're reunited, a reunion, uh, and he explains that he was scared to go back to the to the slum after all that's been happening, and he was hiding in the mountain. And uh, when the cushion came, you know, uh, everything was burning and everything. So he stayed uh, far away. And uh, then he saw them all over this way. And he came out because he wanted to apologize to her. 
And he explains that at the time in the cave, he was scared of her. And um, he thought if he didn't betray her, uh, he would be killed. So he kind of admits, he actually definitely admits his own weakness. And, um, you know, that he's a shitty guy. But he reiterates that he at the time, he really felt, he really thought that, you know, if they were together, you know, they would be like, you know, he would be able to love her. But yet, he was nevertheless a coward who abandoned her. So he actually... He's saying that he really loved her, but this, in spite of that, he couldn't be strong for her. And as he's kind of realizing his own shittiness, she herself is noting mentally that he's the same as her. He's like her, weak. I like that as that's being revealed, you know, we see a reflection of her in the water that's nearby. So, you know, yeah. she's reflecting about he's the same and it's being revealed on the panel where she's seeing a reflection of herself. I thought that was yeah, very cool. Very, very neat uh, effect. And... So yeah, as, as he's you know saying goodbye and leaving, she tells him to wait, and we see that actually it's, it's a pretty beautiful shot of uh, you know him on the left and her on the right, you know on two different panels. Yeah, it's it, honestly it's um, it would be perfect for a kind of romantic comedy, you know, and uh, so it's funny to see it here because of these characters, but and yet it's still you know uh, something. And at that point, yeah, it's pretty sweet. It's also aided by the glamorous, you know, background with the light shimmering on the on the water. I there, know. it's a really cool effect. It's just perfect. And Mura could have just, I don't know, not bothered and just went with a blank background. But he actually chose to put this by the water to, uh, you know, take advantage of that effect and what you mentioned earlier, the the mirroring uh, of uh, of Nina. So that's that, that's mm-hmm. pretty cool. You know, I, I thought that's a pretty thoughtful of a way to compose the scene. So we, we actually cut to Farnese at that point. And uh, she's thinking about the, the tower, the fact uh, it just disappeared like a sandcastle. It was fragile, uh, you know, and she equates it to what she stood for, what her faith, you know, the, the church, whatever, everything. And she it makes her wonder if it was so empty to begin with. And uh, then she thinks back to her childhood and, you know, think to face, and she realizes that it was... Nothing more for her than a diversion. She was hiding herself uh, behind the order, behind the awe of you know the proceedings and everything in order to escape fear, to frantically escape the darkness of that night from her childhood when she ran out from her home. So it's what I was saying earlier: is that you know everything she had been to this point had been a consequence and a reaction to that trauma. So even if that face was only. Uh, how to say, she only occasionally uh, let her fear and, you know, the disgusting part of her uh, out. Uh, her face was solid. And, you know, we get to see uh, a shot of uh, Gut's uh, chest, you know, which he whipped in a frenzy when he teased her uh, back in Volume 17. She says that all that ostentation, all that face, everything which she thought should have protected her was brushed away so easily, uh, you know, when actual darkness, overwhelming darkness showed up Everything she stood for, a whole whole world was, you know, brushed away. And we see a shot which I really like on the next page, which is uh, her as a kid under a blanket with her bunny, you know, toy uh, in a broken tower, you know, in a small broken tower. And um, I think that really uh, exemplifies well, uh, you know, her state of mind and what she's been doing all that time is that she had built this little tower on her, uh, which was face and everything, but it was just, you know, like easily broken away. Yeah, the crumbling walls of, you know, the kind of the persona that she created for herself through the faith is now crumbling. 
It's something, you know, which I guess the people who don't get Farnese, uh, they don't, I don't know, they didn't read that line, but she says it very clearly. She said, I was again, meaning, you know, that night she was again in the darkness, but then no, perhaps I have always been in the midst of that night. And again, it's, ex- mm-hmm. you know, it explains that she's always been acting as a consequence of the trauma of that night. So everything to that point was a reaction to that. Now we cut to Serpico and Azan who are discussing, uh, you know, what's, uh, what's going to happen. So he, he asks Azan how he came through. And Azan explains that he was fighting the monsters before the gate and he lost consciousness w- when the gate collapsed on top of him. And uh, his club, you know, his iron uh, quarterstaff uh, acted as a support that prevented the stones from crushing him. I love that. That's so cool. The iron sur- made him survive. It's very, it seems really appropriate for him. Yep. He was the only one uh, still not, still alive. So, you know, I like that he's referring to the fact he again survived in Yobly. We, we never get to know uh, what he did in his past. And I hope we get to know, you know, soon. I mean, in the future at some point. He, he has survived in a way that he was really displeased with. And it's not something that had happened before and probably pushed him towards uh, faith and becoming a, a holy knight. We had discussed it a couple episodes back anyway about, he kind of said not again, right as the gates were crashing down and he realized his situation. We get a little bit more of a, of a elaboration here about having uh, been betrayed on the field of battle by those I must protect. And he says it happens again. So yeah, as we say, we're, he's still kind of getting a, getting a little bit more color about what that scenario was in the past that basically made him take the cloth, you know, something yeah. happened where he was in a similar scenario that made him turn to faith. And as we see in a, a page, you know, he's now turning away from the faith or beginning to think this might not be the way for him either. Yeah. Very, very interesting bit of, uh, explain, you know, I'd say character development for him. And then, uh, Sir Pico's asking, uh, of, uh, he's trying to call to Farnese and she's, we, we get to see uh, Azan reflecting on the fact, like you said, that because of the previous incident, uh, he had, you know, taken the clothes, uh, he might be reconsidering. So uh, Sepiko calls to Farnese and she tells him she's departing. And uh, Azan is asking if uh, they're returning to the holy city. But Farnese then tells her that uh, she will follow the Black Salesman, which comes at a shock to both of them. <laughs> and, you know, uh, Azan is like, oh, you must send, we must return to give our report. And Farnese just, just calmly says that she's renouncing uh, her vows. Azan can tell that to the Holy See and to her father, which is, you know, pretty cold on a part. And, you know, without missing a bit, sir, because like, whoop, that's the way, you know, see ya. <laughs> Have a good one. Because, yeah. uh. Well, the waving hand, like, well, see ya. It's, uh, you know, that shows also Serpico's, uh, loyalties, like, absolute to Farnese, you know, and they just basically leave Azan behind them. It's like, no, wait, wait. But uh, they, they, they don't care, you know. So it's like di- Dine and Dash. She's bad. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Luca gives some provision to Serpico. And uh, meanwhile, Fanny is still thinking that she never escaped from that childhood darkness. After all, even through her face, even through the burning, the fire, whatever. She was always in that darkness. Until, you know, actual darkness, you know, appeared before her, you know, which is what happened uh, during this night. Yeah, she reflects on the fight. It's uh, almost if it were her destiny to, you know, uh, cont- to her as the one who has continued to live in fear, uh, to face that darkness. And then she says she was brought along with a black swordsman again several times, and he was the only one standing in the darkness. 
So it reflects to the the fact it refers to the fact uh, he he had fought with her, you know, at that night with the dogs, and uh, here again he has you know been standing and fighting, and that's what inspires her to to follow him. Is that maybe he is actually the one he should be following because he actually can stand up to to darkness while everything else fell to it during this night. Uh, meanwhile, Azan says uh, he's been running away from painful reality and that this may be a good opportunity to, you know, to come back to it. and or to disengage from the church is what the implication seems yep. to be. Before that, and that's, again, a cool part about Azan is that someone must bear responsibility, you know. Like Farnese, she's still immature enough that she can just say, eh, I don't care, I'm just, you know, I'm renouncing, I'm going away. But Azan, he has a sense of duty and he can't just leave, you know, uh, everything like that. He has to report back. Somebody has to be responsible. Somebody has to tell them what happened. And so he returns al- alone right. uh, to in order to do that. And notice that no no and one gave him food, you know. <laughs> he just, you know, fucks off on his own. Yeah. <laughs> Poor guy. In the background, yeah, right on the hill. It's uh, sad, though, to me that this is the last we see of Azan before we see him basically a vagrant in, in Vertanus, you know, years later. Uh, not knowing. It's again, uh, I think, a time when we know that Mura, uh, you know, maybe had a change of plans in that, you know, at the time there was a little painting that was uh, used uh, on a postcard, among other things, that showed Azan uh, with Shiruke. You know, we only saw her hat at the time, but uh, it hinted at things that were yet to come. And it felt like the group would be reunited uh, earlier than that. But yeah, uh, you know, it, it ended up taking uh, uh, quite a while longer, so... Another thing I'd like to point out on that page is that at the time, Farnese is still not really like she kind of views uh, Guts as a prophet, as a as a kind of, you know, thing to idolize. And it's something that she's actually dealing with uh, right now in Elfelm, you know, in the dream with Casca. She, she's been idolizing him and, you know, having a crush on him for, for a long, long time. And uh, she's kind of dealing with that now. And I think uh, moving past that, you know, uh, which is also something that uh, she's been able to do uh, since she started uh, receiving lessons from Shiroke on uh, magic. So, yeah, I think that's interesting. It's, uh, again, the beginning of a journey towards enlightenment, which takes uh, a long time to come. She's not she's not ready to cut her hair off in this scene yet, but she may as well be. And even at that point, she still has a lot to learn about guts and about her path forward, even now in Elvim. So, yeah, lots of... Development for her still to yep. come. So now, truly, all the characters that matter have left. You know, we only left with, and I say that, we, you know, I'm, I love uh, Luca and all the girls and Jerome and everything, <laughs> but, you know, we're left with these guys. And they're like, phew, you know, okay. So uh, what what are they going to, to do? And um, Luca thinks that Nina's taking a long time. You know, as the other guys are just, you know... Uh, trying to get Jerome to become a patron or anything like that, you know, and to introduce them to <laughs> all the friends of his. Uh, they're already thinking about their future. And uh, yeah, Lucas wondering. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and uh, they're pitching, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and uh, yeah, Lucas wondering where Nina, Nina's gone. And uh, we actually cut to a shot of uh, the two feet, one of Nina, one of, Jero- uh, one of Joachim, uh, as they look on to the group from far away and... Uh, uh, Joachim asks her if she's sure, and she replies that if she went back now, uh, she couldn't leave again. And then she thinks to herself that she's sorry that uh, she makes Luca worry to the very end, 
she's decided to go with Joachim and that she loves her and she loves uh, her other friends, but that if she stayed with her, she's sure that someday, eventually, she would have started hating her again and to hate herself again, like uh, she'd been doing uh, when we were introduced to her, because it's just who she is. And she reflects further on the next page that a, a person hurts someone because they're strong and they hate someone because they themselves are, are uh, weak, you know, and uh, she knows uh, she knows that well enough. And that's why she decides to go with someone who is also burdened with weakness and uh, sin like her, someone who's as weak as her, because if she's with him, she, she feels like uh, they can both become a, a little better, a little kinder, a little stronger by uh, helping support each other. Uh, as opposed to if she was uh, just, you know, a sycophant to uh, uh, somebody strong, she she would have that uh, hatred she mentions. So she says she wants to be with someone who can trust others without clinging to them. Uh, and she wants to live and to keep on living. And there's that, you know, shot of the blood drops, which hints that she might, we don't know how long she has to live, but, you know, she, she wants to live anyway to keep on living. And she wants to see Luca again someday. Uh, without being, uh, you know, clinging to her, without fearing, uh, and that she can smile to her sincerely, you know, and not just, you know, uh, hypocritically. And, you know, we get to see that shot of Luca holding her, her head in her hands and saying, ah, oh, she really is a troublesome girl. And then we cut to the final shot of the volume, which is the skull knight on an outcropping, uh, watching the, you know, the crumbled tower in the distance, and uh, we get a... Uh, um, a, a sentence from the narrator who says that day, starting with a fissure opening on the frontier, the shape of the world became to crumble. Which is a which is a perfect ending for the conviction arc and the beginning of the Millennium Falcon arc, and that's what this episode represents. Which is the ending of one arc, and the next is the beginning of the Millennium Falcon, which is a great segue, yeah. I think. One thing I like is that it's a very hard to say ominous line because it says you know uh it, it's a beginning you know things begin to change the shape of the world began to crumble so it's not like uh it clearly hints at the fact that it's not like nothing's over yet it's only just started and uh you know of course events will go on and on until volume 34 where you know that's really the big thing and uh, still keep going after that so yeah very big moment do you guys do you guys think we'll see Nina again? I don't think so. No. I feel like her story is ended. I, I, I just get that sense. I know that Luca has since returned, sure. obviously, but for Nina, I feel like it wouldn't it wouldn't feel good to have her back like it did with Luca. With Luca it was like, Oh awesome. With Nina it was like You know, I like to, to put to make a parallel between Nina and Farnese. And Farnese is a character that had an inner goodness and an inner strength that made of worthwhile to develop and, you know, become stronger and, you know, and become a better version of herself. But I, I feel like Nina, at the end of that volume, at the end of that little story, she's basically reached the end of her journey and that she she can go on and live with Joachim, you know, for a few years or months or whatever. But, you know, yeah, like like Grace, I think she's, she's at the end of uh, what, you know, her, her development is a story. It's, it's kind of like, you know, Theresia, you know, people are always talking about Theresia, but, you know, that, that point, you know, in volume three where she's angry and, you know, she says she'll take revenge on guts and basically she's becoming 
like Gus himself, you know, somebody driven by revenge. And that's, you know, she's just a little girl, an angry little girl, and that's that's it. You know, there's no point in bringing her back. So, yeah. I th- all these things I agree with, except for this most recent reading when that panel really struck me about how she wants to live and keep on living and see her again. I, I would make the same argument that she was beginning to change here. She was beginning to learn how to live by herself without being clouded by fear with the help of Joachim and that, and that, you know, years later she might come back as a, you know, stronger character as we're just seeing how the beginnings of that new character here. But, you know, I, I agree that her character arc seems to reach a comfortable closure here with this last few pages. I don't know. I just, I, I think there's room for it. Uh, I just, um, I didn't until this recent reread, I was quite convinced that we would never see her again, but now I, I don't know. I don't know for sure. It all depends on the delivery. I feel like, yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't real. I never really expected to see Luca again, but it, it fits. It fit at the time, and it still fits in my head now that she's still around. You know, the thing is, uh, she would have to be cured from uh, syphilis in order to survive. So that's yeah. uh, that's kind of a tall order. And then she, they would have to, if you are to survive uh, Fantasia, which is also uh, not an easy thing. But you know, mm-hmm. I mean, all that being said, I would be delighted to see Nina again. I'm sure Mira would have. If if he brought her back, I'm sure it would be great. And the same goes for for Jill, for Theresia, for whoever you want. I mean, if Mira brings them back, I'm sure it will be great. But like, if I were to bet on it, eh, probably not. You know, probably not. I mean, I I, yeah. I wouldn't. The the only moment I can see it being truly worthwhile to bring her character back for is for is for Luca to witness how much she she's grown up. Rather than to merely her imagine it, to actually see kind of the seed that she had planted, you know, blossom into a, a strong person. I could see that being a cool moment. Other than that, I'm not sure the narrative purpose of bringing back a character like that. I agree. Yeah. Fun to think about, though. But that's it for Volume 21. That's it for the conviction arc. That's it for this portion of the story. The Moving forward, you know, things move very steadily towards, uh, you know, kind of where we are now in the story. This was a, I mean, this is a very, thick book that was closed for berserk i feel like at this point you know a, a real a real portion of the story is is now behind us in this part of the reread so yep we will be hitting up the millennium falcon arc next with uh volume it's a 22 doozy. um thanks for- yeah it is lots to happen yeah because <laughs> you know it's funny because it's a like a big part of the story closes down like you said but you like there's still so much up ahead you know it's like wow yeah, I mean, boy, like like it says at the end, it's only just starting, you know, mm-hmm. only beginning. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it, guys. Thanks for tuning in for another reread, and we'll be back in a bit with Volume Twenty Two's reread. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs>